from today's parables, teachings, and even the oxymorons. What do we learn? What do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about his kingdom? And most importantly, friends, what do we learn about our response? Asking that, let's pray. Speak to us, Father. We come needing to hear your voice. We come needing to be fed by you. So we open your word. Father, may it go deep within. May you speak to us as we need to be spoken to. May you transform us as we need to be transformed. May you strengthen us as we need to be strengthened. May your word go out and may it produce a harvest in our lives. And then may you send us to reap the harvest in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. We continue our study through Luke's Gospel. So if you turn with me to Luke chapter 13, we're going to continue where we left off last week. Luke 13 in Luke's Gospel, 13 starting in verse 18, which starts, Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. There, were, Oh, no, no, we're not starting. That's verse 10. How about I start in verse 18? He said, Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and he sowed in his garden. And it grew and it became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And he went on his way through towns and villages teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he'll answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and they'll recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. And at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and I perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's been estimated that at least one-third of Jesus' recorded teachings comes in parables. And in Luke, Luke the Gospel writer actually includes more parables than any other Gospel. And the section that we begin today, 13.8, all the way through 16.8, Jesus tells more parables here 
than anywhere else. So the next few weeks, we're going to encounter a number of Jesus' parables, some that we've looked at before, some famous ones that may be familiar to you. But so let's talk briefly about what a parable is and what it is not. You see, because some people have compared Jesus' parables and they go, well, what they really are is they're kind of just homespun sermon illustrations. You know, some folksy down-home wisdom that Jesus offers to illustrate his points. But friends, if that's what a parable is, then Jesus was a lousy teacher. Because more often than not, once he told a parable... People were left scratching their heads. A sermon illustration is supposed to make the point clearer. But when he told parables, people either got it or more often had no idea what he was talking about. People regularly walked away going, what do you mean by that? So these parables are not mere stories and they're not mere sermon illustrations. Parable is used 48 times in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it comes from the Greek word para, which means a beside, and bowl, which means to throw or to cast. So these are stories that were cast beside. They were cast out. And what are the stories about? Well, they're about all kinds of things when we read them. In fact, we heard a couple today. They're about seeds and farmers, fathers and sons, kings, coins, banking, and more. However, what are they really about? Like, what's the purpose of these stories? What are they trying to reveal? And friends, what they're trying to reveal is the kingdom of God. Because when we read the Gospels, the majority of Jesus' teaching was about this kingdom of God. And yet at the same time, God never gives, Jesus never gives a dictionary definition of what the kingdom of God means. Instead, what he does is he tells parables. He goes, the kingdom of God is like... He gives us stories, pictures, glimpses, rumors of the kingdom. Jesus' parables, they're they're glimpses of the kingdom of God. But why parables? I mean, why only give us glimpses? Well, you know, you've you've had that experience, you know, where you're, you're walking down the street and you see something out of the corner of your eye. And what do you do? Well, you have a choice. You can either ignore that and just continue on your way, or you can go, what what was that? And in the same way, Jesus reveals glimpses of the kingdom and they demand a response of the hearers. They might catch that glimpse and might go, whoa, what was that? And seek to understand more. Or they might just go, I don't have time for that. Not interested. Not important. You see, the parables demanded a response of the hearers. And those that had eyes to see and hearts to seek, they would respond and want to understand more. And those that didn't, They would just walk away going, that guy's crazy. They would just walk away and as Jesus said in Matthew 13, seeing they don't see, hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. But for those that had hearts to see, they would catch a glimpse of the kingdom and go, I've got to understand this. I've got to understand this more. You know, it's kind of like telling a joke. You know, when you tell a joke, you either get it or you don't. And have you ever had to explain the joke? Because once you've explained the joke, it's not funny anymore. And it's the same way. If you got Jesus' parables, they packed a punch. You're like, whoa, I had no idea. But if you didn't get it, even if somebody explained it to you, you still probably wouldn't have really gotten it, and it it still wouldn't really be funny. So Jesus' parables, they offered glimpses of the kingdom, and they invited a response from his hearers. Are you the type of person that wants to get the joke or not? Jesus opens this section with two parables. And what do they both do? They reveal to us 
glimpses of the kingdom. What's the kingdom of God like, he asks, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took, sowed in his garden. It grew, became a tree. Birds of the air made nests. It's like leaven that a woman took, hidden three measures of flour until it was all leavened. You know, we need to understand that the Jewish people were waiting for the kingdom of God to come. They were waiting for God's anointed, his Messiah, the one who was going to bring God's kingdom. But they expected that when the kingdom arrived, it was going to be disruptive. It was going to be big. It was going to be military. They were going to overthrow Rome and set Israel free. And that's what they were looking for. However, Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is really like. And he emphasizes in these two parables the small and the subversive and the unseen nature of the coming of God's kingdom. You see, a mustard seed was the smallest seed that was known to Galilean farmers. However, when it was planted in the garden, it grew into a tree that was 8 to 12 feet tall. And in the same way, a small, unseen amount of leaven, for those that bake, know that it can work its way through an entire batch of of dough and cause the whole batch to rise. And Jesus says in the same way, the kingdom, while it starts out really unseen and unimpressive and almost unnoticeable, One day, one day it's going to have and demonstrate a tremendous impact. And friends, just how big an impact will the kingdom of God have? Just how big will it be? We miss something because we don't understand the culture and we don't understand these illustrations he's using. You see, because he talks about the mustard plant growing so large that birds would nest in it. And what we don't realize is that while the mustard plant would grow to be, could grow to be, you know, 10 to 12 feet tall, birds wouldn't nest in it. So this mustard seed that he's the tree that he's describing is huge, ridiculously huge, comically huge. They would have heard that. Nesting in its branches that big? That's ridiculous. And more than that, three measures of flour, three measures of flour translates to about 50 pounds or 38 liters of dough. That's enough to feed about 100 people. And they would have laughed and they would have gone, who who would bake that much bread? That's ridiculous. Friends, Jesus made ridiculous statements about how small and then how great would be the kingdom. It starts off small and unimpressive. But he goes, hey, listen, here's the real joke. I know you're laughing at how big that mustard seed grew to be and how much dough there was. But what's really funny, the real punchline, is that that's what my kingdom's going to be like. Don't miss the punchline. Jesus told these parables right after he'd faced opposition. We, we might remember that last week we saw he faced more opposition from the Pharisees and from the religious leaders. They were rejecting him. And so Jesus says, yeah, the Pharisees in the crowd, any who have ears to hear, it's okay that I'm being rejected now. Sure, it doesn't look impressive. It doesn't look impressive, but you need to know something. It won't always be so. The kingdom starts off small, but one day it's going to be huge. The impact worldwide. And so it is that Jesus' hearers needed to respond. And friends, how? How to respond to this kingdom? Verse 22, it says, Jesus went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying. And someone asked him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, 
will seek to enter and will not be able. So somebody having heard Jesus' teachings about the kingdom and having talked about what it was going to be like started to get a nagging suspicion. Maybe, maybe my entrance into the kingdom, maybe salvation won't be as automatic as I think it is. Because many of the Jewish people believed that simply because of their genealogy, simply because they were part of the line of Father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were part of national Israel, then that would be enough to secure salvation and God's blessing. And so Jesus, he confirms this man's suspicions, but he does even more. Because do you hear the question versus the answer? The question is, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus essentially replies, will the saved be you? He takes a philosophical question and he makes it deeply personal. Because you know what? Jesus doesn't have time for rhetoric. He's looking for responses. And friends, how do we do the same thing where we kind of hold Jesus at arm's length with intellectual challenges and and questions instead of responding to the invitation that he's making? Jesus says to the man, strive to enter through the narrow door. So you, you stop, stop wasting your time on the philosophical questions. Let's get personal. You, you strive to enter through the narrow door. Respond, strive, seek, enter into salvation. And Jesus confirms the man's suspicions. The door is narrow. The way to salvation to the kingdom is a narrow gate. Now Jesus has used this image before in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Friends, he says that the way to salvation, the way to the kingdom, it is narrow. And what is that narrow door? What is the way? Jesus taught in John 10, I am the door, I am the gate, and if anyone enters by me, He will be saved. Friends, the way to salvation, the way to the kingdom, Jesus says, is through Him and Him alone. Jesus is the narrow door that He's talking about. So to reject Him is to miss the only way to salvation. In this statement, Jesus is warning the nation of Israel that she's going to miss the blessing that she's been waiting for for centuries. You see, they were the most obvious candidates to find salvation and to enter through the door to salvation. They were given the greatest opportunity. They should have been the ones first to receive it. But they seemed poised. Poised to completely reject Jesus and to miss the blessing. Because the Pharisees and the religious leaders consistently reject Jesus. And He is the narrow door. He is the way to salvation. And once the opportunity has come and gone, Jesus says, that opportunity is lost. He speaks about the door being closed and people knocking on the door and pleading, we ate and drank in your presence, you taught in our streets. But he'll say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Jesus says, it's not enough to be near me. You know, being near a door or being aware of a door or seeing a door doesn't do you any good. You have to walk through the door. Jesus says salvation is more than minimal knowledge or casual acquaintance with the door. 
You need to go through the door by faith. Jesus says the way to salvation, it doesn't come automatically because of race or nationality, as many of the Jewish people believed, and it doesn't come casually, simply being near Jesus or hearing Him speak. Salvation comes by responding to Jesus, to walking through the narrow door by faith in Him. Friends, this teaching, this warning that Jesus was giving to the nation of Israel is just as real and just as important for us today. Salvation doesn't come because of our lineage or because of your family history or your family piety. It will not come because you were near Jesus. It will not come because you sat here and heard His words or warmed a pew or even eating at His table. Friends, salvation comes not by the external. It comes by the internal response. Faith that responds to Jesus and enters through the narrow door. And friends, ask not, will few be saved? Ask the better question, will you be saved? How do you respond to Jesus? However, this question, this question of will few be saved, please note that Jesus unequivocally does say, the door is narrow. Pew Research Center's recent study on the American religious landscape revealed that two-thirds of Christians believe many religions can lead to eternal life. Fifty percent of all Christians believe some non-Christian religions can lead to life everlasting. And friends, if that's true, then Jesus is a liar. Jesus declared the door is narrow. He didn't claim that he was a way to God. He didn't claim that he was one of many valid and competing truths. He didn't claim he was just one of many options by which life could be found. Jesus claimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Truth by its nature is intolerant. When you declare something is true, you imply that competing claims are false. And these are narrow and intolerant claims. If Jesus is the way, the narrow door, then there is no other way to God. If Jesus is the truth, then all other purported truths are not. If Jesus is the life, then whatever any other, any other thing promises, it can only deliver death. Friends, church, truth by its nature is intolerant. But we do want to remember, most importantly, that while truth by its nature is intolerant, truth bearers need not be intolerable. Because we remember that Jesus, who made such intolerant statements, he himself was not intolerable, abusive, or self-righteous. He wasn't a jerk. So friends, let's be like Jesus. Let's admit that while these claims of Jesus are narrow and intolerant, we need not be intolerable. And let's consider these claims. Most importantly, friends, not are they narrow, but are they true? And do I believe them? Because this morning we all sang together, what can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing. Nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is nothing 
Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ that can forgive our sins, that can make us whole again. Do you believe that He is the way, the truth, and the life? Jesus either was who He said He was, the narrow door, the only way to salvation, the only way to God, or He was a megalomaniac and a madman, and He's really not worth listening to, so we should stop wasting our time and go home. So which is it? How do you respond to Jesus and to his narrow claims about who he was and the way to salvation? Jesus declares, the door to the kingdom is narrow. It's through me. There is no other way. And while those of the nation of Israel assumed that they were in because of their lineage, Jesus makes a shocking statement. He makes a statement that would have shocked his hearers about how wide was the table in the kingdom of God. He talks about them being rejected, that in that place outside the door they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And then people will come from east and west, north and south, and recline at the table of the kingdom. And behold, some who are last will be first, some who are first will be last. Jesus says to the religious leaders and the Pharisees, the patriarchs, the patriarchs of the Jewish family, Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, you'll see them there at the kingdom table. However, you, you stand in danger of being cast out because you refuse to enter through the narrow door. You keep rejecting me. And then Jesus makes the statement that would have shocked his hearers. He says, but at that kingdom table, you know who's going to be there? People from the north and south, the east and the west. The nations, people from every nation, every tribe and tongue and nation will be there reclining at the table of the kingdom of God because that table is wider than you could ever imagine. You see, because to the Jewish hearers, this would have been scandalous because they thought only the Jewish people were going to sit at the table of the kingdom and all the Gentiles were going to be rejected. But Jesus says, no, in fact, you guys are on the path to being rejected And all the nations, they're going to come in because the table is so much wider than you could ever imagine. So much so that some of the first will be last. You were first to be offered, but you're not coming in. And some of the last, those that are getting the offer last, the nations, they're going to come in and be first at the table. They're responding to me. They're coming in through the narrow door to the wide table of God. The table of God's kingdom was far wider than they imagined, yet the door to the kingdom was far narrower than they desired. Friends, God's mercy to us is far wider than we could ever imagine. And one day we will sit and we will worship eternally with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered at Christ's kingdom table. Yet all who are there, all who will come, will have come through the narrow door of Jesus Christ. For He is the only way. This is the oxymoron of the kingdom, both wider and narrower than the Pharisees or than we imagine. Many people will be at that wide table that we do not expect. And yet many that we do expect will end up shut out at the narrow door of Jesus Christ. And friends, it is not our job. It's not our job to figure out who will be in and who will be out. Our job is to respond to Jesus. Don't go around asking, is it going to be few or many? Ask, is it going to be you? Our job is to respond to Jesus. So friends, have you responded to him? How have you responded? 
And church, our job, our job is to declare this message of the narrow door and the wide table. A narrow door to salvation for Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Yet that door is open wide to all who would believe and who would enter and they will find a wide table of God's grace and mercy. Church, are we faithful to declare that message? And finally, Jesus ends in verses 31 through 35. Whoop. 31 through 35. We'll stay right there. Um, now the Pharisees, we find the Pharisees begging Jesus to get out of there. They go, Jesus, Jesus, Herod, he wants your head. You better get out of here. Now the Pharisees have not had a change of heart. Like, you know, I'm really concerned about Jesus' well-being here. So I'm going to kind of warn him, and you know, because I, I really care about him. No, the Pharisees are expedient. They don't like Jesus at all. And so what they're doing is they're using political intimidation to silence him. Let's silence this guy. Let's get him out of here. Maybe Herod can do the dirty work for us. Herod doesn't like him either. So let's see if we can like intimidate him into silence. You know, because Jesus, if you keep talking like this and don't run and hide, something bad might happen to you. Can you imagine political and social intimidation used to silence religious speech with which you disagree? Can you imagine that happening? But friends, there's no amount of intimidation or secular or cultural power that can stop God's plan or Jesus' gospel proclamation. Jesus declares that God's mission will not be thwarted. He will finish the course. He knows that his purpose is in Jerusalem and he goes there to die. And friends, dead men fear no one. Dead men fear no one. Jesus says, Herod can't take my life from me. He can't take it from me because I'm laying it down. He can't take anything from me because I've willingly laid it all down for the sake of the gospel. So I don't fear him because there's nothing that he could do to me. So I will not be silenced. And church, are we dead men and women who say there's no political or social intimidation? You can take my reputation. You can take my possessions. You can't take my status or my life because I'm going to lay them all down. I'm laying them down at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm already dead. So do your best but you're not stopping me. I'm going to finish the race. I'm going to complete the course. I'm going to boldly proclaim Christ and who He is. I'm going to go forth and accomplish the gospel purposes that He has for me. Friends, dead men and women fear no one. This is why Jesus says in the very next chapter of Luke, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to die first, then follow me. Because I'm going to take you where only dead men and women would go. They can't take my life. I've already laid it down. You can't take my reputation. I've already laid it down for the sake of the gospel. You can't take anything from me because I've already laid it down. And now I'll follow Jesus anywhere he goes. Church, have we taken up our crosses? Have we died? Have we laid it all down so that we can fearlessly follow Christ so that he can accomplish his kingdom purposes in us and through us? Who intimidates you? Who or what is silencing you? Are you ready to take up your cross and to follow? And church, note Jesus' heart in this section. We need to note Jesus' heart 
for those that rejected him. Jesus laments over Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. It represented all the people of Israel. And there he is standing over Jerusalem, weeping and lamenting that they will not come. And the story is told of a small town where a new preacher came to that town and everybody at the church was talking about how good this new preacher was, how much better he was than the old preacher. And so the town skeptic got word of it and he went to one of the deacons of that church and he said, you got to tell me, how is this new preacher different from the old preacher? What did the old preacher used to say to you? He goes, well, the old preacher, the old preacher told us all we were lost sinners and unless we repented, we were going to hell. And the skeptic goes, well, what does the new preacher say? The new preacher tells us that we're lost sinners and unless we repent, we're all going to hell. The skeptic said, I'll be it because I can't tell the difference between that. And he goes, oh, there's a big difference because the new preacher says it with tears in his eyes. Friends, Jesus never changes his message. He never backs down. He never waters it down. He never compromises his message or his mission. He is the narrow door while the kingdom table is wide, but not all will come. Some will reject. And Jesus says that with tears in his eyes. His heart is broken for those who reject. Jesus knows that there's no way to salvation except through the narrow door. There's no forgiveness outside of trusting what He's done on the cross. There's no life apart from His resurrection and there's no way to peace with God except through Him. And Jesus weeps. Church, do we? Do we weep for those who reject? Do we weep for those who do not know? Is our heart as broken as Christ's heart is broken as He weeps over Jerusalem? Do we stand at the top of Mount Batty and look down on Camden? And do we weep? Do we weep for this community and for those who do not yet know Jesus Christ? Is our heart so broken? Friends, we come. We come today and we ask Him to break our hearts. We remember that the door is narrow, but the table is wide. And so we come to the Lord's table here. We come in anticipation and in celebration. And friends, if you've not yet entered, if you've not yet entered by the narrow door coming by faith, then you can feel comfortable as we celebrate the Lord's table letting the elements pass you by today. But don't don't be comfortable standing outside the door. After the service, please come and talk to me. Talk to one of the people who serve. Talk to the person who brought you today. That we may tell you more and that we might pray with you so that you might be prepared to come with us next time and to celebrate and to feast at the table that Christ has prepared for us. And church, as we come again to this table of grace together, the table that's wide enough for many and that's filled with grace abundant, let's confess again our need for that grace. As we come to the table, let's reconcile with our table mates because we need to remember that the grace on the table is sufficient enough for my sins and for their sins and for the sins they've committed against me. And church, as we come to the table again, let us weep, let us lament because there are many who reject and there are many more who do not know. So let's come to the table and pray that He feeds us that He strengthens us 
and then at the end of our service, that He sends us. That He sends us out for the mess- with the message that the door is narrow, but the table is wide. Friends, the narrow wideness of God's kingdom is not an oxymoron. It's a miracle. It's a miracle of grace. And are we ready to come and to celebrate and to proclaim that grace together now? Let's pray. Father, as we come to your table, as we feast, may you have your way with us. We come confessing again our sins and our need for your grace. We come and pray that you would bring us to reconcile with our neighbor and with those that have hurt, that we might forgive as we've been forgiven. We pray, Father, that you would break our hearts the way that Christ's heart was broken as he lamented, as he wept, looking down upon Jerusalem. And then, Father, from, through our tears, may we go forth with a message of hope. May you send us into Camden and beyond with the good news of your gospel. The news that while the door is narrow, the table is wide, and there's grace enough for all. We come now, Father. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.